Uh, we're going to be in the book of uh, Psalms. If you turn to Psalm chapter 24, please. Psalm chapter 24. We are back doing our Summer in the Psalms series. We just finished up our First Peter series, Strangers and Exiles. So we're so grateful to, uh, to be back in the Psalms. Psalm 24 is where we're landing today. I, uh, as I prepared for today's message, I, you know, Psalm 24, so the previous one, just to recap, was from Psalm 23, which a very famous psalm, right? The 23rd Psalm. And I would encourage you, as I went back and looked at it and re-looked at the, the messages uh, for that series, there were six messages, there's six verses in that psalm, and uh, it'd be a, a great way for you to, to go check that out, go to our podcast or go to our content online and, uh, and re-listen to those sermons or maybe go back to your notes that, for, uh, that you might have had for that. Or if you missed it, it's, uh, like I said, available online. Um, so we, we ended up Psalm 23 and we're into Psalm 24 today. We're going to accomplish six psalms this summer. We have six weeks of psalms. Uh, we're going to get through Psalm 30, Lord willing. Uh, in Psalm 24, there's a lot of evidence here as, we, as you turn there. Uh, there's a lot of evidence in this psalm uh, that, that it would suggest that this psalm was penned after the Israelites had just returned from a really victorious battle with the Canaanites. And, and there's, we'll see some of that in a few minutes of, of why, that, uh, why that thought is there. But they were making their way back to Jerusalem and back towards the sanctuary to give praise to the Lord for the, for the great and mighty victory that he had accomplished in battle. Uh, and, and with them, they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They were carrying the Ark, which was the, the symbol and carried the symbol of the presence of God. And they're going back to Jerusalem where, where God belongs to reign and rule uh, once and for all forever. So uh, we're going to see some of that as well. So as, you, as we read through Psalm 24, we're going to see this, this procession of God's people coming from battle, which, which God had the victory, and, and they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And they are coming back in a, praise, in a, in a way of praise for God and, and, and coming back to Jerusalem with the news of the victory. So we're going to see what happens with that in Psalm 24. I'm going to read the entire uh, chapter and then we'll, we'll break it apart, okay? So Psalm 24, beginning in verse 1. It says, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundations on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false, who has not sworn deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the King of glory will come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates, rise up, ancient doors. Then the King of glory will come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord of armies, he is the King of glory. Selah. Well, today as we look to this text, uh, we're going to look at three different sections. It's kind of divided into three sections uh, of just right worship or, or the heart of worship. What, what does right worship look like? And, and for, for a, a nation going from battle where God was victorious back to Jerusalem uh, with the presence of their God, there was a, an attitude of worship that they had to start from and have from their heart. And we'll see that exhibited in this psalm today. But for you and I, as you and I come to worship God, like even on a Sunday, but even outside of these walls, as we leave to worship God, as we as we gather in our small groups or community groups, or we gather with brothers and sisters throughout the week uh, worshiping God, what is, what, in our, what is the mindset and what is the, the, the way we approach worship? What is the right way to approach worship? So we're going to look at that today. There, there are three different things. Number one is this. 
as we, as we approach right worship, there should be a recognition, number one, of God's power. We recognize God's power. Now let's look at verses 1 and 2 back in our text for today. They start off with this praise. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. For He laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. This goes back to thinking of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and there's this depth of, of who God is, Elohim, the God over all, the creator. And, and, and He is the sustainer. He is the one that created it, and He is the one to whom it all belongs. There is no one else. And that's really what should be said. As we come to worship God, as we set apart this time to worship God, and, and even if it's here or outside of these walls, we have to recognize He's the one with the authority. He is God and we are not. Interesting as we thought about the, the Canaanite victory. Uh, in Canaanite mythology and legend and, and actually in worship, they had many deities, but two of the deities were, were, are kind of listed here. And, and it's, it's probably, it's one of those kind of a tricky verses. You look at verse two, he laid its foundations. Like, we, okay, we get that. Right, the earth and the inhabitant, we, he laid the foundations or, or he established it. But he, he mentions on the seas and on the rivers and it's, it's kind of tricky. Like, well, what does that mean? Is he building it out of the water. And, and maybe you go back to Genesis and say, well, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep, right, or the depths. So, okay, maybe you can tie it in there. But even more so, these words that are used there for the seas and the rivers are, are tied into this Canaanite mythology and this Canaanite deities. And they had two deities, that, well, more than two, but two specifically here, that they would worship that were powerful deities to them. They would call them Prince Sea, and judge God, or judge uh, river. Prince, see, and judge river. And, and the, you think about it, how, how people come to their fear of things or, or come to acknowledge power. Uh, I, I'm a scaredy cat of the, of the uh, ocean. Right? I, I, I like to see the ocean from, from here, not from... I mean, I'll, I'll sit on the beach and I'll watch the waves and it's awesome as long as I'm not going out there. Like, I don't want to go in the water. I have this weird phobia of the sea monsters that lurk beneath probably because it was Shark Week recently, and I watched that. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things, right? I, I, I have this healthy fear, and uh, maybe unhealthy, I don't know. But it's the sea, right? And there's power behind the sea and the waves of the sea. You watch these shows with these boats out there, and they're doing a job or doing work, and then the, the, the swell of the ocean comes up. and say, ah, we're out of here. We've got to go back in. It's too treacherous, right? I, you have to kind of give it some respect. The sea is powerful. Also, rivers, Rivers are very powerful. We were in Montana with our, our family, and, and we were, went to a river. It was like 105 degrees. We're like, let's go to the river and get some, get some coolness, right, which is hard to escape the heat. But we were at a river, and, and there was a little section that was kind of uh, walled up or dammed off with a bunch of rocks. That kids, It was more like a wading pool, and we told the kids, you have to stay there. Because on the other side of that, the river was rushing through, and just down, down the road, they're joining with the Kootenai River and flying, going down to the falls. You don't want to get in that, right? I did, but I, I you know. My kids, they would probably be swept away. And there were times where I, I knew I, I can't go any farther because there's so much power in the river. So we look at something that's powerful and we say that must be the most powerful, right? But all in all, as this victory has been had, uh, the reminder here is back to the Canaanites saying, listen, you think your sea god is awesome. You think your river god is awesome. But the Lord, right, the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belongs to the Lord. For he laid its foundations on or over the seas. He's bigger and badder than your god. And, and he established it on the rivers. He's bigger and better than that God. In fact, he's the creator of all of those things. With power comes this authority of God. Not only did he create, but he has authority over all 
of the world and the earth and its inhabitants. They belong to him. We see it in Deuteronomy. Now, Israel, what does the Lord, the God, ask of you except to fear the Lord your God? That's a healthy way to start that relationship of power. I'm going to fear God by walking in his ways, to love him and to worship the Lord your God with all your heart. So out of a fear and respect and awe and reverence and right worship, it's coming from the heart and all your soul, it says. Keep the Lord's commandments and statutes I'm giving you today. Or else, no, it doesn't say or else. It says keep the statutes for your own good. The heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. There's no other God. There's no God like our God, right? There's no God like Jehovah. Yet the Lord has his heart set on your ancestors and loved them. He chose uh, their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the peoples as it is today. Uh, going back to our last, our previous uh, our series, Strangers and Exiles, that we were a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Therefore, now this relationship, this right relationship with this awesome, powerful God, it says circumcise your heart. It's not a fleshly thing, it's a heart thing. And don't be stiff-necked any longer or prideful or arrogant. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. I love that. No partiality, no bribe. We'll see in a few minutes that we're all doomed, but we can all freely come to him by his grace through faith in Christ alone. See, right worship is, is about recognizing God's power and his authority, and it puts us in our place. He is God, and He is to reign supreme. Well, what's next? Well, in right worship, we see that there's a necessity, number two, a necessity for purity. There's a necessity for purity. The question is raised here. Uh, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. So we've seen this sovereign, powerful authority and, and rule over all of creation. We've seen that we've established that, that he has the power. So the question now arises, how are we able to approach him, the one with all the authority and power? Or better yet, how do we prepare ourselves to be spiritually qualified to enter into fellowship with him. Charles Spurgeon, as I read through, he, he asked this question, he said, is it I? Is it I? May I? Am I ready? Am I worthy? Is it, how may I approach him? And so many of us, we, we like to think we can approach him, but we hold on to everything about us and all of our little gods and, and, and the pleasures and cares of this world. And God says, no, I, I want all of you. And, and you come to me with your, your works only, and there's no heart behind it. It's like the idea of those who come with clean hands and a pure heart. The truth of a relationship with God is we can't have clean hands unless our heart is pure. We can pretend we have clean hands. We can look the part. Listen, you show up at the time on church, and you're, well, most of you, you show up at the time to church, right? You dress the part. You look the part. You, did, you put in your dues, and you're like, okay, I'm good to go. I put my little thing in the offering box, and you've checked off all the appropriate boxes. All the while, your heart was never in it. You say, well, I was clean. I'm, I'm, no, no, you weren't. It starts always with the attitude of the heart. Who might ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who might stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not appeal to what is false, or does not lift their soul to another. We'll sing that in a little while. The song, Give Us Clean Hands. 
The appeal to what is false is from the depths, the inner person. When I appeal to what is false, when I worship what is wrong, when I worship false gods, when I put idols above God, that comes from the heart. That comes from a, a, a contentment and a need for pleasure from within. See, a relationship with God, right worship, is not about you and I having just clean hands and looking apart. It's about a purity of the heart and in the heart. Spurgeon says this, I'll quote him, He who is content with the husks will be reckoned with the swine. Does the world satisfy you? Then you have your reward in this life. Make much of it, for you will know no other joy. When we turn our attention and, and of the heart to other idols and, and the cares of this world and the pleasures of this world, that will be exactly what we get for our reward. All the while, God is there as this great, magnificent treasure, the creator of the universe, the judge over all, saying, come, have a relationship with me, and you will know joys for all eternity. Are you there? Are you ready? Is it I? Well, we think it is sometimes. We think we're good enough. The Bible says we're not, though. It's more than just being good. It's about the condition of our heart. The psalmist writes in Psalm 53, 1 through 3, he says this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And they are corrupt and they do what is vile. And then it goes on because you think, well, maybe that's not me. I don't say there's no God. But there is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. Verse 3 says, all have turned away. All. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. You see, we're all in the same boat. As far as humanity is concerned, you and I can't have clean hands, right? When God looks down, there's nothing that we can do that's good. We are not good. We are far from good. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. But our, our passage from Psalm 24 shows us that there is a righteousness from God that is a blessing to those who actually come to Him from the heart with clean hands and a pure heart, appealing from their heart to what is not deceitful, appealing from their heart and seeking from their heart what is true. What we see here is this expression of, of being justified by faith in Christ. The person who approaches God through repentant faith will be declared the righteousness of God. Listen, on our own, we are unqualified and we are unfit to enter into fellowship with God. Listen, if we were qualified and fit to enter into fellowship with God, we wouldn't be here. We would be doing our own thing in our own pride, in our own way. My hope is that as we come here for right worship, we know there's a necessity for purity and we know that we come here humbly before a God who made us pure through the sacrifice on the cross. As he shed his blood and as we have expressed faith in him, we are forgiven. So we come to the place honoring him who made that possible. Paul writes in Ephesians, you are saved by grace. Through faith, this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. No one here today can boast and say, look how good I am, God must accept me. No one. We all come today saying, look how good God is, that he would forgive even me. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3. If you want to turn there, why don't you turn there with me? Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 22 through 28. 
I want us to see this blessing because we see that uh, he, the one that has not sworn deceitfully, the one who comes to God with a, from a pure heart, right, with clean hands, that he will receive blessing from the Lord in righteousness from the God of his salvation. So how, do, how does that look? Well, Romans 3, beginning in verse 22, says this. The, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ, right, from a pure heart, right, to all who believe, since there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us has sinned and made mistakes. We saw that. There's no one good, no, not one, but we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Amen? God presented him as, as the mercy seat, as the sacrifice, as the blood atonement, right? By his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. Think about how God could have handled us in our own sin and what we deserved. But God was patient, and he, and he passed over the sins previously committed, and he presented us with Christ, who is a, a righteousness through faith. So God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present, present time so that he would be just and to justify the one who has faith in Jesus. What does that mean? To be just. For God to be just means God has to be holy, perfect, pure. That God, the God of the universe, a perfect God of the universe, can't like look at sin and be like, oh, no big deal, I'll sweep it under the rug. God, a faithful, true, just God, cannot deal unfairly like that. He has to be fair. So the wrath of God is going to be poured out against sin. But what, how did he do it? It says here that, that he, God presented him, that is Jesus, he presented Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, would be just. What, he presented Jesus so that his justice, his wrath, would be poured out on Jesus Christ so it didn't have to be poured out on you and on me. Amen? See, through faith in Christ, we, we can have the wrath of God satisfied because it's been satisfied in Jesus Christ. And when the wrath of God for me has been satisfied through my faith in Christ, we are now justified. It says he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. I've said this before. What does justified mean? It means when I stand before God, it's just as if I'd never sinned. See, the wrath of God has been poured out on Jesus, and through faith in Christ, I am now wiped clean. He goes on, where then is boasting? It's nowhere. We can't boast. We can't brag. We can't say how good we are. We're nothing, but God did everything. Where is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By the one of works? No. On the contrary, by the law of faith. For we conclude, here's the summary of the Romans passage, we conclude a person is justified by faith and apart from the works of the law. What does right worship look like? What does coming to the heart of worship look like? It looks like purity from the heart. It looks like being justified and forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to show you an example of this uh, in, in Psalm 5 and how, how amazing God's love is here and, and how we focus on, we come together in worship, we focus on His excellence and His love and His forgiveness that purifies us. Romans 5, beginning in verse 4, it says, I'm uh, sorry, Romans, Psalm 5, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. And the Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. This goes back to our, our original passage, right? We, we don't want to appeal to what is false. That's against God. But I, this is the psalmist writes, because there's hope. But I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. 
The only way I can enter your house, God, is the abundance of your faithful love. I bow down towards your holy temple in reverential awe of you. Jumping down to verse 12, for you, Lord, you bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. The righteous one is only righteous because of the Lord's faithful love. And we bow down in reverential awe of him. So in right worship, yes, we, we come to him knowing he's all-powerful and he's, he's the great almighty and he, he has a place of, of supremacy in our lives. We also understand the necessity of purity. And that purity for us can only be accomplished through faith in his faithful love. And when we walk into his presence, we're only clean because of him. But it takes being pure, having been purified. Is that you? Have you trusted Christ for your forgiveness? Have you let what Jesus did on the cross count for you? Listen, all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We've all, we've all made the mistakes. There's nothing that you and I can do to earn our way back to God. We can never stand before God and say, look at my resume, God, how amazing I am. And he just looks, looks back and says, there's still sin. You've still made mistakes. You're still separated from me. Don't you know that he sent Christ to take what you and I deserved, the wrath of God, the wages of sin is death, that Jesus took that upon himself willingly, shedding his blood for my sin and rising from the dead three days later, having victory over death so you and I might have life. We get forgiveness and we get life through what Christ has done for us. And we, we get that through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's not in our own selves, it's in Christ alone. Right worship demands that we have purity, pure hearts. Finally, right worship. Number three, in right worship there should be a desire for God's presence. A desire for God's presence. You might look around and you might think about your own life or uh, opportunities you've had to be in different worship services, even maybe this one. And maybe you've come together and it's kind of like this, our own little, we want to have this, our own fun time and do our own little thing and be, uh, and it's just all about us. And there's, there's no desire for God's presence, right? And may, maybe it's not so much in a church setting you've seen that before, but maybe you've seen that in a small group. Or maybe just as friends get together, you get together to banter and do your own thing and there's no desire for right worship, for an attitude of the heart that says, listen, God should be exalted here and God should be drawn into our presence. I, we want him here. See, right worship should desire the presence of God. You think about this march towards Jerusalem and, and, and as they're heading in and they're, they're taking with them the, the Ark of the Covenant, they, they said the only way the battle has been victorious is because of God. He's the one that's accomplished it all. And they knew as they headed towards the temple that, that people who realized it wasn't on them and it was only because of God that they could enter the temple. And then as they, they went towards the city and the gates were there, uh, there's this scene there, and we're going to talk about it in a second, but in the, in the passage of Scripture, there's this calling back and forth out to the people at the gates. And so let's read this in, in this desire for God's presence, what it looks like. And the question I want you to think about and ask is this, are you ready? Have you prepared yourself for God's presence? Are you ready to fling open the gates and doors? Here's what they call out. They're approaching the city. Lift up your heads and gates. Rise up ancient doors. Then the King of glory will come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up ancient doors. Then the King of glory will come in. Who is he, the King of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the King of glory. 
Now, if you were to research this a lot more, and uh, you'd see a lot of connection here to some of this writing and the style of writing to what the, some of the Canaanite poetry was uh, in the day as well. And that's, again, why we see this is probably penned after a battle, a uh, vic- victorious battle against the Canaanites. Uh, but as, as they come towards the city, you think about your, your nation is out at war. Your nation is out, out fighting right now, and you don't know, your hope, you pray that God would be victorious and that, that surely he will be over these, these crazy enemies, right? We, we want God to be victorious. But you're at the city gate, and, and you don't know. And, and the, the, the attitude might be a little bit somber at the time, right? All of the fighting men are gone, and are out fighting this war, and you're at the gate, and what might you do? You might just hang your head low. Oh, I don't know what to expect. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm unsure. And then all of a sudden, over the horizon, you hear the, the marching and clanging of metal items and tools and swords and weapons. And all of a sudden, this shout comes to the city, knowing that, that you're wondering, knowing that maybe you're worrying, knowing you're in despair. And they say, lift up your heads. Lift up your heads. Lift up the gates. Get ready for the king of glory. That's, that's how we approach worship. That, that we come here maybe having had sorrow, maybe having had grief and despair in, in life. We've been, through, we've been through it. But the encouragement through, through worship and in worship is that we would lift up our heads and we would open our hearts and open our gates to prepare ourselves for the King of glory, the King of kings. And they would, they, at the gates, they would, they would lift up their heads and, and they'd see and they'd be encouraged and open the gates. And, and they said, open them wide for the king of glory, right? He shouldn't have to duck or stoop or push his way through. Open them wide for the king of glory. Who is this king? They'd shout back and forth. And this was a song and a liturgy they did. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. There's an anticipation for the presence of God and to be in the presence of God, to be in the presence of the one who had victory. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord of armies, he is the king of glory. The gates of the city are called to open up and and they're called to prepare themselves for the triumphant entry of God himself. Are you prepared? Are you prepared in your own heart? Do you anticipate do you desire to lift up your heads and, and to fling wide the doors so that he might enter? So that he might have priority and preference, that his kingdom would reign supreme in you. First for them, they, they needed to give honor where honor was due. Open those gates up and surround ourselves uh, around the ark and around the, the holy place of God and worship God for his victory. And for us, as we corporately gather and worship, that we would fling wide our attitudes. And, and as we come in, we would, we would be expectant for the presence of God and, and desire to worship God and elevate Him because of His sovereign, unchanging, and faithful love. Daniel prophesied about this as well because of this dominion that God would have. That He, he said that we want this presence of God to be the dominion of God. God should reign supreme. Daniel writes in, or in Daniel 7, it says, I continued watching in the night, uh, night visions, and suddenly one like the Son of Man was coming up with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days, and he was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Listen, you and I are, are, are way better at just cracking the door for Jesus than flinging open the door. We, we don't really enjoy Him always having total dominion in our lives. We don't always enjoy His total presence in our lives and His guiding and even the, the, the refining that He might do and the disciplining He might do in our lives. But I would urge you, church, don't just crack the door. Fling wide those gates. Allow His presence to come, to be with us here, but, but more importantly, to be with you individually. You see, God wants to rule and reign in you as well. And we can apply this opening the gates for each one of our hearts, each one of our souls, that God would enter and change it by the power of His Word and the presence of His Spirit. And we see this in Revelation chapter 3. We see this, that the, the fact that we are separated from God by sin, that God has atoned for our sin on the cross and He's making a way for us to be forgiven and to be brought into right relationship with Him through faith in Christ. Revelation tells us this, that He stands at the door. He says, See, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and to eat with him and he with me. See, God wants fellowship with you. He wants it to be here and personal. Not just on the outside, oh, I have clean hands, but no, from a pure heart, appealing and seeking the face of the God of Jacob. He stands at the door and knocks. In my Bible, as I, I highlight that verse in my scripture and I, in the margin, Whenever I show that to somebody in the margin, I have written down, open the door. Open the door. Believe, trust Christ from faith deep within. Open the door. Fling wide the door. Let him come in. Let him forgive. Let him heal. Let him repair. Let him restore. And let him be Lord and Savior. So we prepare ourselves for right worship. This psalm is about that right worship. We acknowledge that He is supreme, that He is the glorious one, that He has all the power. We acknowledge there's a necessity for purity, and I can't do it in myself. I'm unfit, but my purity comes through faith in Christ. And we desire His presence. We long for His presence. So when we come together, we fling wide those doors and let Him in and let Him have His way as King. Amen? Would you stand with me as we close and continue in worship, please? Father, it's our desire that we would, we would worship you rightly. That, God, we would, we would get and cut to the core of the heart of worship. And, God, that we would, we would desire purity. God, we would elevate you as, as supreme, as powerful. God, and that we would long for and desire your presence in our life. Knowing that only in Christ is there victory. Only in Christ is there hope. Only in Christ is there joy. And you are our greatest treasure. May we not lift our souls to another or what is false. May we abandon those idols for you. We thank you and we praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen.